So I didn't get that lifetime movie moment mm. where you're with your husband sitting across the desk and the doctor lays this news on you and it's all solemn. I got a phone call saying you have cancer. We'll call you on Tuesday. This is the Living Numbers Podcast, where the numbers tell the story, but the people, the people give the numbers purpose. Of course, make sure you subscribe for extra episodes. Me and Kim just had a wonderful talk about grandkids and growing up as a queen. (laughs) And you definitely want to subscribe to be able to hear all of the extra stuff that we talk about before and after the episode. Um, obviously make sure you like, download, share, because this is going to be great. Of course, listen to this wherever you listen to it, because it's everywhere. And of course, whenever we have somebody on for the first time, they have to get an elaborate introduction. So hailing from Grand Rapids, Michigan, she earned her bachelor's in political science from little brother, Michigan State University. <laughs> Shout out to Sparty. She will have an opportunity to rebuttal once I finish. <laughs> She's owned and operated English Hills Country Club and Terrace for almost 40 years. It sounds like maybe there may be some changes going on there. She's also authored two books, Cry Until You Laugh, amazing title. And love is both of which we will talk about in this episode. She's volunteered and helped countless people through her current position as executive director at Rays of Hope for Haiti. Author, speaker, true meaning seeker, lover, fighter, and breast cancer survivor. I present the Kim Sorrell. Say hello to the people. Hello, everybody. It is an honor to be here. I'm so excited to be with you. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm really glad you're here. And, you know, you reach out and you hope people reach back and you start to look around at what they've done. You're like, hey, I think I think I want to have you on because you've been through some, you know, some really (laughs) difficult times and some really great things. So I just noticed, like, just as a side note, that that ending part rhymed. I didn't even write it to do that. But as I was saying it, I was like, oh, wait a second. That's I want to write it down. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) Um, Did, was there anything that was wrong in there? I'm sure I get stuff wrong. I try to find the best information I can, but anything (laughs) you want to correct before we, before we keep moving? Yeah. Well, I didn't get my bachelor's from Michigan State. I went to Michigan State (gasps) for a while. I know, but I fell head over heels in love with the man that I married and uh, he was working on his degree. So I went to work so he could, he could finish his degree. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. You got to make things work as we will hear about your story a little bit later on, which I'm sure there is tons there. So we're going to start here in 2009, which is our first number because I used to work for a country club. Sweetwater Country Club in Sugarland, Texas. And my brother worked there first. So he was like, 
you should just come over here and work. And I was like, cool. I worked there while I was going to college and we were great workers, but we both, uh, I think we were a little difficult to deal with. You know, teenage boys, they, they kind of stink sometimes. You know that having two older brothers. And <laughs> I know that now being a high school teacher, some of my kids are just I'm like, I could just, you know, why do I do this? Why am I here? So <laughs> enough about me. So talk about how did you get into to food service, the country club? How did this happen? Because that's not like working at McDonald's or, you know, place down the street. It's a country club. It's prestigious. And sometimes it's hard to get into those places. So how did your journey start there? Well, there was a piece of land for sale that had a nine hole golf course on it and a little shack on the hill. And so bought the piece of land, turned it into 18 holes, and then added fine dining, added event facilities, had indoor golf for a while, did different things throughout the years. And so that's that's how it happened. Do you have any, any favorite parts of it? Because that's a lot. You know, you got fine dining, you got the golf, maybe a pro shop. There's a lot that goes into having a country club. So what were some parts that were maybe difficult? Like, oh, maybe I bit off more than I could chew. And then maybe what were some parts where you go, you know, this is kind of cool. I, I really enjoyed it. I have to say, I mean, certainly it could be difficult. You can get some difficult people in whatever, but I always just looked at that as kind of a fun challenge. You know, how, what do you, what can you do to make them happy? And, and just try to make everybody happy. And sometimes you, you can't, but most of the time, if you have the right attitude, people will have the right attitude back. And so I, I enjoyed it. We did a ton of weddings, lots and lots of golf outings, lots of social events. It was just, so it was fun. People were coming. The majority of the time, people were coming for something happy. So that, that was nice. Did you have any employees um, that that sucked <laughs> or, or any employees that were, well, probably both. Let's go with both employees that were the worst and then employees that were the best. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Some of both. I, I had, <laughs> I had a, um, a, a policy that mm. if I ever made anybody cry, then they shouldn't work for me because nobody should ever cry at work. So if I ever got upset enough that I made somebody cry, or if I ever got upset enough that I raised my voice, then they needed to go because nobody should be all that at work. And so uh, I got, you know, the people that shouldn't be working for me didn't work for me very long. And then, yes, I had some great staff. I had staff that was with me for over 30 years. The staff wow. stayed. Okay, who? Yeah. Who are these people? Um, we know we got to know. Chef, our, our chef, our superintendent, um, we're both. And then we had people that they worked for us and then their kids worked for us. And uh, so it was generations. We had people that got married there and then their kids got married there. And so wow. it was it just was really nice. And and I sold the business uh, the first of the year. and so. I'm still in touch 
with a lot of the staff and we stayed in touch over the years and because people move away or whatever. We had a lot of college students, high school students that would still work for us in college and then uh, move away, whatever, or come back and work when they could. And so it was, it was fun. We had great staff. Was it easier to hire management or kind of entry level employees like waiters or cashiers, that kind of thing? Oh, way easier to hire uh, waiters, cashiers, pro shop, people who work pro shop, you know, whatever. Management staff is a whole different ballgame. You got to mm. take it slow and make sure that it's a good fit. Because not everybody's a good fit in every company. And if you've got a team developed, then what do you need? You need a point guard? You need a center? What do you need? You know, and and so the person's got to fit the the place. Yeah, heck yeah, basketball. I coached basketball for 25 years. I played. What? Get out of here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, time to pivot. Okay, (laughs) basketball coach. Were you, it sounds like you might've been a little bit of a a screamer and a yeller. (laughs) When I was coaching. Oh yeah. I mean, for for the girls to hear you for sure, for sure. But I was a great encourager. Like, uh, Mm. you know, even with the kids, I, I didn't have a great deal of respect for coaches that would demean their players. I just never think that's a good idea. That, That never helps anybody. And especially girls, you know, boys, I coached boys volleyball for a couple of years. That was, that was fun. And with boys, you can yell at them and they'll go, I'm going to prove you wrong. Doggone it. Mm. You're never going to have to yell at me again because I'm going to do it. You yell at a girl and she's like, you're right. I'm terrible. You're right. My, no, no, my no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you just can't go there. You just can't do it. So were you always just into sports growing up? Yes. Yes. In high school, I played basketball, volleyball, and softball and loved it. Wow. Sports, yeah. Sports had a big influence on my life. What position did you play? I played point guard, in, second in base. Each. Point guard, second base, and setter. Whoa. Okay. So it sounds like, because those are all positions where you run a ship, you're in control, you see everything. You put people in place. Oh, you need to be here. You need to be there. This person needs the ball here. This... How did that happen? Do you feel like that was something that you were, was it always like that? You were a five-year-old trying to run a house and then it was just a natural progression? Or you do you think like you've always just been kind of one of these people that like to be in control or you just were, was good at it? How did take us through that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, uh, I don't know. I feel like in elementary school, I wasn't like I was leader of the pack or anything like that. I just had friends, you know, everybody's just friends. And uh, there was some of that going on. I just was never that person or never wanted to be that person. I just wanted to be friends with everybody and uh, not separate people at all. Everyone should just love each other and be friends. And so uh in sports. And that, but then I became a leader, um, because I got mm. elected to, you know, like class president and student council, you know, whatever. Yeah. Right. So then, you know, people see that in you, I guess. And then it develops because you get put in positions where it's 
make it or break it. So you got to do it. Was there any teachers or coaches that put you in those positions on purpose? Because I know I do it with my kids as a high school teacher. You know, I got groups and stuff in class and I'm always scouting, like, who are my leaders in here? Who can I put as like group leaders? And then, of course, on the court in practice, I'm looking like, okay, who's going to be our leader or who just steps into it? So did you have teachers or coaches that put you in position and then you just excel? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I went to a very small middle school. It was a Catholic mm-hmm. school. My uh, only Catholic school days were sixth, seventh and eighth grade. And there was a nun, Sister Mary Lewis, who we were all scared to death of. But she would, she pointed me out as the leader. Like she would have me do the Mm. things that she would expect a leader to do. And I tried to live up to her expectations because she had a ruler and it would hurt if she hit me with that thing. So, (laughs) so yeah, I think she, she saw something in me and, uh, I didn't really think about that till now, but that's what happened. She actually, it was a story. I'll tell you a quick story. There was, it was end of our eighth grade year and it was right before eighth grade graduation. And there was a boy in my class, Fred, and Fred was messy and she did a desk (laughs) check and Fred's desk was a mess. And Uh so she told him he had to clean it and he refused because it's the end of the year and nobody ever said no to Sister Mary Lewis. Like you didn't dare say no to her. And she was three times our size. She was, you know, everything that you think of when you think of a nun uh, as a head of a school, an eighth grade. And so uh, Fred ended up um, telling her where she could go when it wasn't heaven. And he left the classroom. Yeah. And that was, we just sat there shocked. Well, the next day, he showed up at school and he came so back. He came back. Yes. And wow. we were so surprised he came back. We thought he probably was dead. Like she probably tracked him down and killed him. <laughs> like you, you just don't do that. Or God smitten him, you know, the thunderbolt or something. So yeah. before class started, she called me up to her desk and she said, when class starts, I want you to raise your hand then stand by your desk. We never stood by our desk when we raised our hand. We'd raise our hand. She'd call on us. We never stood up. But she said, stand up and say, sister, are we going to allow Fred to graduate with our class? I'm like, oh, my gosh, why me? Why are you making me do this? So (laughs) class was about to start. I raised my hand. I stood up. Sister, are we going to allow Fred to graduate with our class? And she said, well, I don't know, Kim. What do you think? She never oh. told me she was going to ask me. <laughs> he was my friend. We were all friends. And I was like, I like Fred. You know, he made a mistake, but I like him. I think he should. I don't know. And then I didn't know if I was going to get kicked out of class or what. But, oh, my word. Yeah, that was that was a scary moment. So what happened next? She allowed him to graduate with us. So it worked out. Yeah. So he just got away with it? He did. I mean, I think because it was the very end of the year that mm. she was probably just done with all of us. You know how it is being a teacher. You, uh, you look now. forward to the end of the year too, right? 
Ah, let me think. So it depends. Well, no, we always look forward to the end of the year, right? Because we got some time off. But sometimes, especially in the first semester, because my classes change every semester because of what I teach. Sometimes you just have a great group of kids. So I want to say last year, this time, I had such great kids. It was almost like a double-edged sword where I'm like, man, I can't wait for the semester to change over. I get all new kids. But I love these this group. Sometimes when you get the right people in the right classes, and sometimes you got a guy that, that will be a jokester and kind of keep things light. If he was in class X, it would be the worst. But class A needed a little bit of that. So when you have that balance, at least for me, some people are like, everybody be quiet. Just do your work. I don't want to hear anything. They're really, you know, that's how they run things. I'm not that way because I know if I'm bored, they're probably going to be bored too. And my, that's just not my personality. And so it wouldn't make sense for someone who is like that, very stern, very strict by the rules. It wouldn't make sense for them to run their class like I do. Now, let's not get it twisted. There is a level of respect and there is a baseline in which things will have to operate no matter what. However, there is a little bit more chatting, a little bit more dialogue, because I teach speech classes, communications, it's teamwork. So that makes a big difference. So shout out to Sister Mary Lewis, right? That's her name? <laughs> Sister Mary Lewis, yep. Sister Mary <laughs> Lewis, you made an impact. And as a teacher, that's that's just what we hope for. Like we don't we don't know if kids will see it now or down the road or 20 or 30 years, but you're like, I just hope they got something. It's got something. So, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, coach, actually, what? Oh, go. I was going to just say a couple of weeks ago, I went out to lunch with uh, my uh, varsity basketball coach. So I, I appreciated my teachers a lot and loved, loved him as a coach. He was one of my favorites for sure. Maybe my so favorite. you still watch basketball now? I do. I was dating a guy who played in the NBA for several years. I watched a lot okay. of basketball then. <laughs> but um, I love basketball. It's a great sport. It's it's fun. It's fun to coach. It's fun at every level. You know, I like, you know, the little kids in there just trying to make it happen. I like coaching uh, when you're coaching fundamentals. It's fun when you mm. get kids that are just learning so you can teach them the right way so they don't pick up yes. bad habits that, that carry through. Yes. And so that's fun. And then it's fun to teach, coach kids that have, are developed. And, you know, varsity especially is fun. I coached varsity volleyball, too, for 17 years. And it's, it's a good time. I like to win. Did they call you Coach Cam? They just called me Coach. They still call just me Coach. coach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who's your game like? If you had to make a comparison. Who's my game like? Mm -hmm. Who would you compare your game to? Uh, well, whoever's the best, I would compare my game <laughs> oh, to. Oh, yeah. So Steph Curry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> well, I can tell you that my five foot nothing mom married a short man. So I'm not real tall. So, you know, I, it's a little bit limiting. I never looked at it as a limiting thing, but 
mm-hmm. it's nice in a lot of sports to have a little height, a little more height than I've got going. Oh yeah. Um, so are you watching the Pistons? I watch the Pistons sometimes. I haven't seen them this year, actually. Thinking about it. Who's Season your team? Just started. Got to be the Pistons, right? Of course, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, we've got some interesting pieces. We'll see. Uh, we're young, so you know, we young players. There's some growing pains. Um, but we'll we'll see. I think we got the right pieces. They just got to grow up. And we'll see how it goes. Uh, it's going to be a fun, fun season, I think. Last yeah. thing on basketball. Mm-hmm. Was fundamentals like your favorite thing to coach kids? Or basketball player? Doesn't matter. Um, my favorite? Maybe. Yeah, what was your favorite thing to coach? I, actually. Like aspect? Uh, I, I love the... Uh, I love the challenge of figuring it out. You know, what are they playing? What's their offense? What's their defense? What what mm. can you do to to stop their offense? You know, what do you need to run so that they're not able to run? And I like I I'm a running gun coach. I like to run and gun, run and gun. And there's a lot of coaches that say, "No, slow it down." And I'm always like, "Slow it down. Never slow it down. Go, 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 go." You know, I'll take two points every time down the floor. Heck yeah. Yep. So, yeah, run and gun. I like to coach. I think it's closer to what you talked about first, like the strategy, the IQ part of the game, like how to beat what they're doing, you know, finding the soft spot in the zone or making this cut here or this back screen here. This is how you get open. And this is why we're running what we're running. Don't be robots, you know, because I think sometimes uh, <laughs> they get into like, okay, I'm supposed to do this and I'm supposed to do this at this specific time. I'm like, well, you got to kind of read the floor. Like you got to know what's going on. If right. you break the play to make a play, that's a little bit different than just running the play right into the defender. And, you know, so that's right. I, that's the breaking down the why and how things work in basketball. That's my favorite part to coach uh, girls, boys, whoever. So. Yeah. Wow, I didn't I didn't anticipate a, a coaching discussion there. Wow, I'm I'm excited. <laughs> it's fun. Fun so, stuff. Our next number here is 10,714 square miles because that is the size of Haiti. So you spent a lot of time doing uh down there, doing a lot of, of work to I mean, there've been tons of things that have happened there. It's, earthquakes and hurricanes, so on and so forth. Um, how did you get there and what do you miss about it? I went to Haiti the first time, I think in 1998 and mm. swore I would never go back there again. Wow. Why? I've been to a lot of tough countries. I do, do a lot of work in Dominican Republic, some countries in Africa. Um, and, uh, been in tough, tough places, tough situations. And Haiti is its its very own place. But I was home for about two weeks when I couldn't wait to go back again. There's something about Haiti wow. that gets in your blood. And so in 2010, beginning of, of the year, end of 09, I wasn't sure what I was going to do because I was just recovering. And so 
I was either going to go back into my businesses, but I had people running those or go back into the nonprofit world because I was doing that. Mm. So I decided I was going to be part-time bookkeeper of Rays of Hope, an organization my dad and I started 10 years before then. And so I started January 1 with clean books. And 10 days later, 12 days later, there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people. So I went from part-time bookkeeper to 24-7. And a couple weeks later, I was in Haiti. And then for the next several years, at least part of every month, I was in Haiti. Wow. So you've, have you always had that heart to just help people? Because not everybody's going to jump in, you know, two feet down, ready to roll. Have, have you always been that way? I think so. I, yes. I mean, I, I, like even in junior high, I loved going to, we used to call them the old folks home, right? The homes for... <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day, that's what we called them. And I loved going there and talking to people that never got visitors and just mm. being there and hanging out and making friends, you know, with people that just needed someone to notice them. And so yes, yeah, feeding the homeless in my town, doing doing whatever I've always loved to do, stuff like that. Uh what was what surprised you most about Haiti? So you got there. Um, it could be the first time or it could be the other times that you had gone. What surprised you most when you got there? I'm like, oh, okay, here we here we go. There's our country and other countries have hurt Haiti a lot. We've done mm. a lot of damage to Haiti. There's people that get rich off of poverty, unfortunately. And Haiti is a country that has been hit hard by people getting rich. When the island was split, because two-thirds of the island is the Dominican Republic, and one-third of the island is Haiti. And that was the plusher, better part of the island. And it's now it's deforested. It's people are doing things, you know, trying to help the land come around and more farming. But we said, no, you got to import your rice. They were growing all of the rice they needed on their own. And we said, nope, you got to import it. You know, if you want money for this, you got to import your rice, put all kinds of farmers out of business and stopped wow. all kinds of farming. And so stuff like that happened, which is rotten. I mean, it's one thing, like I work in Burkina Faso in West Africa. Well, it's sub-Saharan landlocked country with no natural resources. So they Mm. have droughts and they have famine, but it's because of the land. It's because of the the location. It's not because other people are inflicting it on them. Where as in Haiti, it is a lot of other people inflicting the pain. How would you fix something like that? <laughs> it's kind of a loaded question. Well, yeah. One time I was uh, going down, I happened to sit by Sean Penn on the way down uh, on the airplane, and we were talking about it. And he said, they need a dictator. And I, I said, well, dictators, you know, that goes to their head. Like, I don't see that, you know. I mean, look at Chavez mm-hmm. in Venezuela, you know, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't see it. And he said, well, they need a benevolent dictator. And I said, well, 
can you name one? Can you name a benevolent dictator? Right. You know, it was there one. And he's, well, that's what they need. That's what they need. Well, maybe, I don't, I don't know. Maybe if there's somebody that has the heart of mother Teresa and the mind of Warren Buffett, or I don't know, whatever, right. To, right. to get things going. But uh, I just don't know that it exists. Apparently, though, because I did look it up, and there was one in Spain years and years and years and years ago. There was a benevolent dictator, a man who just really had a heart for the people, and his heart stayed that way. He didn't get corrupted with money and power, which is very mm. rare. I would guess, because I guess when people say stuff, that's that at first you go, that's silly. For, for lack of a, a different word, right? We're just too silly. Uh, sometimes I just try to go, okay, well, okay, how would that work? Or what does that look like? Or, okay, what were you thinking when you said that, right? Because it's easy to kind of cast people's ideas off and go, I'm not going to say the words that I don't want other people to say, but you know where I'm going with this. But mm -hmm. instead, like, okay, has there ever been one of those? Or how do you? What would that even look like? And so in my mind, I was thinking a benevolent dictator would be great to their people, but strong arm the rest of anybody who tried to screw with them. I guess that's the way that I look at it. And, you know, they would be very stern in their affairs, uh, a shrewd operator, so to speak. But with their people in their land, and I guess the people that that helped them, there would be benevolent that's that's where it comes in so i don't know right. yeah that's interesting yeah. okay what, yeah what do you miss most when you have to leave oh people when you have to leave haiti come in yep. back home yeah people i miss the people i miss my friends you know i've got a lot of relationships with a lot of people in in haiti and i miss them like crazy when when i'm not there and there are people that make judgments, right? People put labels on people. They make judgments on people. Mm -hmm. They assume, like, I've heard people equate poverty to laziness. And there is nothing about being lazy. It, there, there's, there's something about tremendous lack of opportunity. And mm -hmm. so there are wonderful people are people all over the world. People are people all over the world. These people happen to be born in Haiti. And so they're born into this very tough situation and they're wonderful people in a tough situation. Yeah. It doesn't make them any less or less intelligent or less able-bodied or lazy or, you know, any of the things that people want to say about other people. Mm. It's not true. There's, People are people all over the world. I agree. Uh, I taught in China for a year. And there is a stigma, I would say, of how we look at Chinese people here as students. And so when I came back, people were asking, like, was everybody smart over there? Was everybody <laughs> smart? You know, were all the kids bright? And I said, actually, it was much like it is here. You got some kids who are really bright who do all their work and who are awesome students. And you got some people who don't want to do any work, who don't care, you know, that kind of thing are lazy. Right. So it's, 
like you said, people are people no, no matter where you go. The difference about the kids that are here is, and I've talked to my kids, and this is especially true with people, uh, kids who are parents or whose parents live in Africa, who send their kids here. They go, you, you better not screw up this opportunity or you're going back. You know, it costs too much to get you there and we got to keep you there. There's a lot that has to go on for you to be able to, to do this. So, you know, 95 is as low as we going. And I'm still going to ask you where those other five points go. And so that's where the stigma is created where these kids, they have to be that good in order to, to keep this opportunity. And so it's, it's amazing that, and I'm going to move us here a little bit, um, that you were able to go to a Catholic school. Cause I believe that, that religion is very important. It's important to me. I talk about it in my shows. It's important to you. Uh, so our next number here is 66 books. That's how many books are in the Bible. That's what I read. So how did that kind of shape you? Uh, growing up, being from that Catholic background and then going to a Catholic school, uh, at least for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Well, I uh, I love the Catholic Church. There's so much I love about it, and it did me good. I mean, I uh, mm. learned what I learned. I just have deep respect for a lot of the Catholic Church. You know, there's stuff that happens in any church anywhere. And the Catholic Church certainly has had its share of of not some yeah. not good people, right? But it doesn't make not not good church. I know some incredible priests and some just wonderful people. But I grew up Catholic, and then I went to an Assembly of God church for twenty five years, and then I went to non denominational. Mm -hmm. So the beauty of that is I'm comfortable in any church in the world. Most Protestants that I know personally know are not comfortable in a Catholic church. And mm. I know Catholics that aren't comfortable in a Protestant church. And I could go to church anywhere, any church in the world and, and feel right at home and feel good about it. And so I appreciate that. So I appreciate my Catholic roots. And I learned a ton from this incredible pastor that was at the assembly of God church. That was just a great teacher. And so everything's got its merit and you just look for the good in it. So I'm glad you brought that person up because my next question is actually, did you have good examples in this area early on? So talk about that pastor from that church and what he did to really help you and move you along. Yes. Pastor Wayne Benson. He, yeah, he was an honorable guy. He was a wonderful husband, very happy couple. Their kids, they had a son and daughter that were just great people. They're still just great people. And um, so he he walked the talk. He talked the walk, walked the talk. He whatever go. he said, <laughs> whichever way that goes, he was the he was the example, whether he was at the pulpit or at the grocery store. He was who he was, period. And he was a teacher. And he would say, you know, if you see something different, look it up. You know, tell me, tell me if you read this a different way. He was open. He didn't mm. he didn't pretend to know everything, be the authority on everything. He was just a man and 
there was no really putting them on a pedestal, which can happen, which I feel sorry for those pastors that it happens too, because that's yeah. a, you know, that's a big fall if you fall off that, that platform. But uh, he just was an honorable man who was a great teacher and just a great example for a man in the world. It's important to have those examples. I have a couple of my own, Pastor O. I didn't know what it was supposed to look like. You know, even though my, my grandmother grew up teaching us the Bible, you know, man, when people don't walk the walk, it's real hard to buy into it. You know what I'm saying? Especially as a young kid. And so Pastor O came along. I'm like, that's what it's supposed to look like. That's what love is. Huh? Uh, that's what that walk is supposed to be like. That's what it looks like to love God and love people. Okay, cool. Okay. That makes sense. Now I see it. And just other people along the way, we had this guy, um, David, who was an RA when I went to University of Houston. And again, just another guy. He was, I think David is maybe two years older than me, but he just kind of took us all under his wing. And was just like, you know, let's just have a Bible study. You know, let's talk it out. Let's let's work through these things. And it's so important. It's awesome. It's amazing to have those people in our lives that set that good example. No matter what field you're in, no matter what we're talking about, you know, to have those people that can kick it back and forth with you and let you wrestle with it and not make you feel bad about it. I think that's <laughs> one of the hardest parts where I hate when people do it to me. I'm like, don't make people feel bad about the questions. Like. We're human. We have to ask. Like, even Jesus, why, why? Like, why am I here? You know, <laughs> right. shoot, Lord, is this it? Like, come on, man. You know, you can feel his frustration and we have that same stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have a, a story or memory where you feel like you kind of turned a corner, like in your, in your walk and just how you see, you know, religion and it being your own where you go, okay, I think, I think I'm doing okay. Like, I think I kind of see what this is supposed to be like. Yeah, for sure. Well, I met my husband May of my senior year in high school, not expecting to even get married and have children. I was going to be the first woman president. I was going to go from queen to president. And yes. I had my life laid out before me. I knew what I was going to do, my path I had to take to get there. And May of my senior year in high school, this tall, dark, handsome man walked in and stole my heart. And I married him and wow. love him. And so uh, he was also raised Catholic, but at the mm -hmm. time he was going to, there was these charismatic Catholic prayer meetings in town on Monday nights, 500, a thousand people would show up at these prayer meetings. And so he was going to those, he was four years older than I am and he was going to those. And so I started going with him and I was like, oh my word, there's so much more. There is so mm -hmm. much more that I don't know. And it was, yeah, that was it. That was it. Those prayer meetings changed my life. Man, I'm getting chills right now. I know exactly. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean by that. Uh, you had another turn in life that really changed things for you. And I mean, your husband had a turn as well. Um, shout out to your husband. What's his name? Steve. Steve. Shout out to Steve. Yeah. Uh, shout out to my wife, Kia, almost 10 years, you know, huh? I try to shout her out so as much as I can. <laughs> good for you. Keep, keep it up. <laughs> uh, 
So October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So this is the 10th month of the year. That is our number. And you are a breast cancer survivor. So obviously, how did this month, I guess the first question I thought of was how did the perspective on this month change for you once that became like your reality? Well, I received my diagnosis in September, September 5th, wow. 2008. And when I did, right around the corner then, everything turned pink in October. Mm. I mean, you could go to the grocery store and the spatulas are pink and the frosting on the cupcakes are pink. Just everything turned pink. And I hated it because it was this constant wow. reminder that this is what I'm going through. And I didn't like it. I understood it. I had appreciation for it, that there was awareness and whatever, you know, and hopefully more research and all kinds of stuff. But I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. Mm. Uh, I've changed from that quite a bit. You know, now I do like it and I'm wearing pink. So obviously pink came back into my life. Uh, it was just that first year that was tough for me. That's amazing for you to share that perspective because you're like, hey, this month is dedicated to all you know, breast cancer survivors. And, and here you are, someone who got breast cancer. And your first month of breast cancer awareness, you're like, this sucks. You know, just this stinks. All right. So amazing to share that kind of perspective. This shirt is actually has some pink in it, you know, just for the, just for the people watching. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> how did you how did you go from like this is the worst to I have a book? <laughs> well, I I got a phone call on a Friday afternoon on sep that September 5th. And so late in the day, I couldn't call the doctor's office back. They just called and said your biopsy came back and you have cancer. So I didn't get that lifetime movie moment where you're with your husband sitting across the desk and the doctor lays this news on you and it's all solemn. I got a phone call saying, you have cancer, we'll call you on Tuesday. And I was shocked. I didn't even know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't know what to do. So I cried, of course, and called my husband. He came home, did exactly the right thing. He just held me and we cried together And because we didn't know. We, I had no idea. I didn't have any friends who'd gone through it. I, I knew nothing. And mm. I was 47 years old. And so it's not like, you know, a lot of times people are much older when they get it. It's not so common in your 40s. And so I uh, didn't know what to do. So the next day I went to the bookstore and everything was either very depressing or very medical. And I thought, mm. I want to know what this feels like. I want to know, are there choices? Do I just do what the doctor says? What, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to handle mm. this? I didn't know. So I started writing, um, mostly as a way to keep my family and friends informed. I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. I've got surgery next week, whatever it happened to be. But it was much more than that. And so mm. I, I wrote for about a year. And that is Cry Until You Laugh. That's that book. So you wrote every day? I didn't write every day. Mm -mm. I wrote when I felt like writing, when there was something, mm. I felt like there was something to write about. And before I knew it, and I was sending them out via email 
And before I knew it, 5,000 people all over the world were reading my emails. And I was getting all kinds of support from all kinds of people. It was, it was really nice. And, uh, and uh, of course, my faith played a huge part in going mm-hmm. through that time. And so that comes out big time in the book. So, yeah. Also, uh, just a little nugget, right? We, we want people to actually go buy the book, read the book. But what's, what's a memory that you have where you got something maybe from somebody else? Maybe you were reading your Bible or listening to a sermon or something like that where you go, huh, like this is, you know, maybe, I don't know, it brought something profound to you. I'm just going to kind of leave it open there for you. Well, uh, one thing that happened is people would say, oh, gosh, why you? Why you? And mm. you do this, you help people, you do this, you do that, you coach, whatever. Why you? And my response from the very first time I heard it was, why not me? Why would I be mm. immune? I don't believe God is up there going, oh, I saw you steal that Got pack it. of gum. You're getting cancer in two years. You know, whatever. I don't think it happens like that. Nobody's immune. No, nobody's immune to it. I don't think it's something God gives us. I think it's we have disease in the world. There's disease in the world. There's a chink in the armor. I, I refer to it as, you know, something in our DNA that allows it to happen to some people and not others. And so, uh, you know, so it was always kind of why not me, you know, and and that would always take people off guard because I think it's a, a response when it's somebody you love. You're like, why you? Why do you have to go through this? Right. But I don't know. And, and of course, with my husband. Yes, please go for it. Yes. Was diagnosed four months later, four months after I was diagnosed. He started having stomach issues the month that I was diagnosed. And he went to the doctor and he said, ah, take some Tums. You know, you're just yeah. having an upset stomach because of what Kim's going through. And he went back in November and, told the same thing. And then finally got a, got an appointment with a gastro guy, went, saw a PA, was told to take Tums, came home. Wasn't it good? What? And yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't go with them and I'm the mouth. I would be asking the questions and saying, run a test. I, you know, I would be that person. He was a nice guy. Mm-hmm. I was, the, I was the mouth of the family. You're the captain. Yeah. The point guard. That's right. That's right. I was a point guard. And so uh, I couldn't go with them because the next mm. day I was having a hysterectomy because of the kind of breast cancer I had. I needed to have that surgery. And I was having a colonoscopy at the same time because the kind of breast cancer I had uh-huh. go hand in hand with colon cancer. And so I was doing the clean out. I couldn't be five feet away from a bathroom, so I couldn't go with him. And so he came home and told me that I was like, oh, my gosh, you got to be kidding me. After all these months. And so a week later, he was awake before I was, and I, I woke up, and and at this point in time, I'm still recovering because I'd just gotten over another surgery, and then this surgery, and then whatever. They found bladder cancer when they did this surgery, and so that made the recovery a little bit more, whatever. Mm. But so I'm still in bed watching Grey's Anatomy reruns, you know, and and uh and clothes that are you know, elastic around the waist and just comfortable and loose. And, and I woke up and he was awake and he just was in pain. And I said, that's it. Go to the ER. The, the doctor's not doing anything for you. No doctor is. 
the emergency room, at least they'll run a test. They're not going to just send you home. Right. They'll run a test. They'll do something for you, right? And so he drove himself to the emergency room. And he was a guy that followed the rules. I was the mm. rebel. I am the rebel. He's the rule follower. And uh, it said no cell phones. So he had a cell phone off. So I'm trying to call him and I can't get through to him because he's following the rules. So finally, I got a phone call and he said, mm -hmm. I, I guess they're going to keep me overnight. And I'm thinking, uh -oh. keep you overnight. It's a Friday, first of all. Secondly, they don't keep anybody overnight. What are you talking about? Keep you overnight. What what is going on? And so I. Question. Right. So I put on clothes, real people clothes and hopped in my car, drove like a bad out of hell down the road in my Vicodin induced state, not the safest thing oh, to do. No. And I was nearly there. I was close to the hospital. My phone rang again. And he said, I guess there's a spot on my liver. I'm like spot on your liver. So I just started bawling. I just was crying and frantic. And I don't oh. even remember parking. I do remember running in, holding all parts of me. And then somehow I found out where he was and he was behind a curtain and I whipped that curtain back and he was sitting on the edge of the bed like nothing was going on, just sitting there. And I'm bawling. And he said, listen, I am not going to invite you out anymore if this is the way you're going to behave. And I said, listen, you are not allowed to be funny right now. And so it took us a few days to get a diagnosis, a few days, lots of stories. I ended up back in the hospital. I checked in the day he's checking out, just a, a series of wow. events, but took a good part of a week uh, before we had a diagnosis and it was pancreatic cancer, which mm. is not a good one. It's like the worst thing you can be diagnosed with. There's, there's no cure. There's a couple of different kinds of pancreatic cancer, but the one, the, the one that he had is the one that if you live a year, it's a victory. And so, wow. yeah. So, you know, we didn't know, we, we knew the prognosis. I mean, we knew it wasn't good. And so our prayer leaving the doctor's office from the very beginning was Lord heal him like he did the lame, the blind, the deaf, or the ultimate healing that sometimes we forget about heaven is, is really the mm -hmm. ultimate healing. We want a healing here because we want to keep people here, but holy cow, heaven, not so bad, right? But don't let him be in pain. Whatever happens, just please don't let him be in pain. And mm -hmm. God honored that. God honored our prayer. And he was not. He, we had a hospice right away. He, we tried chemo to um, have him live a little bit longer. That didn't go well. Uh, and he never got his levels back enough to do a second round. Mm -hmm. And so... We just knew, you know, we're just living with the inevitable. And we had no idea how much time the doctor thought a year because he was young, healthy, he's six foot three, 175 pounds, very fit. And my assistant basketball coach, by the way, my assistant volleyball coach, by the way. And wow. uh, yeah. And so uh, um, we didn't know how long. So I was already staying home, you know, so we were just. We're home together watching Cash Cab and sports and playing some gin rummy and, you know, doing whatever and had a great time together. And mm. it wasn't until uh, the very end. So six weeks into this, of course, I'm still writing. 
as I wrote for about a year. And this is just, you know, a few months after my diagnosis, but, uh, six weeks in, um, I woke up, he woke, he woke up and, and he was in pain in the morning. I called a hospice nurse and said, you know, something's got to give. And she came right over and, uh, upped his morphine. And then she's on the phone. She was going to get a hospital bed and commode or I don't know, whatever she's ordering because we were in bed together every night. You know, we didn't have any hospital equipment. We were just home being, being us. And, uh, and I said, well, I've got kids out of town. Like, do I call my kids? Oh no, no, no. You've got lots of time. You got lots of time. And I said, you're sure. Like, I don't have to call anybody. And he's no, 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 you've got a lot of time. Don't worry. Don't worry. Mm. And so he was sitting on the edge of the bed because laying down really hurt his stomach. And I was holding him from behind so he wouldn't fall off the bed. Mm. And I could just tell he was just so miserable, just so miserable in that moment. And our prayer had been to not have that misery. And I just, I whispered in his ear, I just said, baby, go. And he took his last mm-hmm. breath. It was that fast. It was that quick. And he was gone. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Man. You are one strong mother. <laughs> you know, sometimes you don't have a choice, right? I mean, there's things that you do have choices on and things that you don't. Like you'd never mm-hmm. choose cancer. You wouldn't pick that, right? You wouldn't no. pick someone you love to to die young. You know, you, you wouldn't pick that. Um, but there's things that you can choose. You can choose how you live. You can choose if you're going to be happy. You can choose if you're going to to wallow in, in mm. sorrow. You know, th- those are choices that you make. And uh, that's why my book is called Cry Until You Laugh. Because, man, it was hard. And I still had my crap to go through. And Mm. I was alone. We had just become empty nesters right before I was diagnosed. The month before I was diagnosed, we became empty nesters. And we had babies two years after we were married. So, and I met him and we got married less than a year later. I I proposed in 10 days. I proposed to him 10 days after I met him, senior in high school. It was crazy. People thought we were nuts, but he was wonderful. We had a great marriage. And uh, he... Uh, he was great. I wasn't going to let him go. You know, I wasn't going to let that go. But two years into it, we started having babies. So we were looking forward to being empty nesters. I don't know what mm-hmm. empty nesters do. I don't know if they run around naked. I don't I have any idea because we didn't get to experience much of it. But for whatever reason, we were looking forward to being empty nesters. Love the kids, love them, love them. But at some point in time, it's really okay for them to go be independent. And so- right, Y'all would have figured it out. Yeah, right, right. We would have figured it out. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, so Cry Until You Laugh was your first book that you wrote about that entire experience, which that's got to be uh, that's got to be on the list. I got to put that in the cart. Um, your second book, Love Is. How did that book come along? Well, you know, I was 47 years old and my husband died. 47. Mm. 
And we were going to be those old people in our 90s on the porch and rockers drinking lemonade and smiling at each other or whatever people do in their yeah. 90s on the front porch. And so that wasn't what our plan was. I mean, this was, mm. you know, we had a little bit of time to prepare, but not much. We're told a year and it's six weeks and which is God's mercy for, for sure. Right. I mean, it was God's mercy and thank God that he didn't have to suffer any longer than in those moments. And, mm. but, but I had to reinvent, I had to figure it out. I had to figure life out and it made me question love. That seems to be this mystery because in John, it says very plainly that God is love, not that God loves, God is love. So love is something that you can be, not an emotion like fear or mm. excitement. It's something you are, right? Something right. you are. But what does that mean? What does that mean? And so I decided I was going to take a year, dedicate a year to just search for the true meaning of love. So I mm. took. First Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, right? You hear it at weddings, Christian or not, you hear it at weddings, right? And so I took that, decided I would take one word a month and figure out what is love that is patient? What is love mm -hmm. that is kind? And I figured out quickly, I couldn't do it in a year because there's 14 is's and isn'ts of love in the chapter. So it took me 14 months, but I, I'm telling you what I discovered about love. I discovered things that are not taught about love. There are so mm. many things that are called love in this world that are not love. Things done in the name of love that are not mm. love. People uh, having tough times in relationships because they don't understand love. They don't know what, what mm. love really is. And if people understood what love is, it changes your life. It changed my life. It would change anybody's life and it would change the world. Wow. Wow. I don't even want to ask another question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You wrote these books like closely in time, you know, through two different perspectives, kind of like, you know, with your husband and, you know, after and being losing your husband kind of pushed you into this next book. So how, how were the, the writing processes different from one book to the next? Much different. The, the first time it was, it was very therapeutic for me to write. And mm -hmm. I never expected it to be a book. I, I just had people telling me it should be and encouraging me to make it a book. And so I actually self-published that one and then it was picked up by a publisher. And nice. so love is I was writing a book because I was, I figured I'm going to live this year, whether anybody ever hears about it or not, whether anybody ever buys the book, whether the book ever even gets published or not, I'm going to do this because I needed to do it for me. And mm. so, uh, but I got a pu publisher right away. And the first publisher that I gave my, my, um, uh, information to. And so, uh, which is a miracle all by itself because it doesn't happen right. in the publishing world. And so, but somebody believed in me and decided they would publish the book. And so it was a much, much different process the second time because I was writing a book and the first time I wasn't. And so, but it was, it was interesting because I start out each chapter with what I think it is, right? Mm -hmm. Like patient, 
you know, first month I'm going, love is patient, love is patient, just looking for it everywhere. And most of the time I was mm. in Haiti when I was doing this because I didn't start it that very first year after he died. And you know, I was still processing things, but then I started it. And, and so, uh, love is patient, just looking for it, looking for it everywhere. And so I write what I think it is, you know, like patient, you know, you're not mad because your son isn't on the bus because he can't find his shoes and he didn't pack his lunch the night before. So now you got to drive him to school and you're not yelling at him. Mm-hmm. You're being patient with him. Right. So that's how I looked at patients, but I just, and then I, then I tell the story of what happens in Haiti mm-hmm. that brings me to the truth about love that is patient, love that is kind each month. And I have some crazy things that happened. I was chased by a motorcycle gang. I got lost on a mile high mountain with a med student. I slept outside with tarantulas and snakes and chupacabras or whatever's lurking in the bushes in Haiti. I mean, I had some stuff happen, got in a car accident. I mean, there was just some stuff that happened. And so I tell the story and, Hmm. uh, I don't know if God just had to do something that drastic in my life, you know, like get chased by a motorcycle gang because yeah, every single month, it took me the entire month to get it. It took me the entire month. Mm. And then it was like, ah, now I understand. Now I get it. Now I understand. And so you put love is in front of anything, any word, and it changes the meaning of the word. So none of them were what I thought they would be. None of them. Wow. I predict. Yeah. Um, I don't want you to give anything away um do you have like a favorite chapter or or a chapter that was hardest to write yes i would say the toughest to write and then each month i carried into the next right so practicing love mm-hmm. that is patient when i'm working on love that is kind and so on and so on cuz love that is patient took me a lot of practice i i really had to practice but uh yes the toughest one for me that I was kind of dreading was love keeps no record of wrongs because we might forgive people, but how you don't forget what happened to you. Right. No. So how can that possibly be? Well, that month I'd gotten a phone call from a guy in the United States that wanted to see this water project that uh, we were working on in Haiti. And Mm. so he asked if I would show him what we were doing because he was interested in getting involved in it. So he brought seven other guys with him. So eight guys from the U.S. And then I, I had two Haitian friends that went with us, also men. Uh, and so to translate, and they'd been working on the project, so they knew it inside and out. And we drove out into the countryside and to where we were staying. And we got there. And it was a little house with two rooms. And there were four twin-sized beds in each room. So eight. American men, two Haitian men and me. So almost immediately the head guy pulls me over, Kim, Kim, can I talk to you? I'm like, sure. So I go over there and he said, did you see the rooms? And I'm thinking, buddy, there's nothing else to see. This is a little tiny place. Like, but I'm also thinking there's room in the rooms. We brought a couple cuts. We brought an air mattress. We're fine. You know, we'll, we'll just put them up in the rooms. There was some space. And then I thought, oh, he's asking me because he's going to think I want my own room. 
So I'm going to say, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And then he'll say, oh no, if anyone should sleep inside, it should be you. And then I'll say, well, well, I don't care if there's other people in my room. And he'll say, oh, good. Because, because there's only mm. some room, right? Mm. So I said, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And he said, oh, good, good. Because we've got men in the group that would be very uncomfortable with a woman in their room. Katie's hot. You go into your room to sleep. Wow. That's it. You go in there to sleep. You're not playing cards. You're not doing anything else. You're going in there to sleep. You're, otherwise, you're outside. And I'm thinking, what is going to happen in a room full of men and me in the night that I now have to sleep outside? But I said I would. So I had to figure it out. So I looked around and there was this piece of plywood held up by these kind of little wooden structures. And I thought, well, if I sleep under there, at least I won't get rained on if it rains. So, but I was afraid because there are tarantulas and there are snakes. I would be afraid. And there are scorpions (laughs) and there are whatever there are there, right? And so uh, I was afraid that something's going to happen in the night. I'm going to get dismembered, you know, or whatever. And so uh, first night I went to bed and blew up the air mattress. Well, the air mattress held air for about an hour. And then I was sleeping on gravel. And it was so loud because dogs were barking and horns were honking. Finally, that died down maybe 1 a.m. And then 2 a.m. voodoo drums started in the distance. And that went on for a couple hours. And so then finally, I was able to go to sleep. Well, Mm. the first night came and went. All was well. Everything was fine. Second night, blew up the air mattress, out of air in an hour, sleeping on the gravel, the horns, the dogs, the voodoo drums. Finally, I'm sleeping. But I woke up because there was something on my leg. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what is going to Bite me, you know, does he have the anti-venom to whatever it is that's about to take off my leg or, you know, can they airlift me to Miami in time? What's going to go on? I had no Mm. idea. So I slowly lifted my head and I slowly opened my eyes and it was a chicken. There was a dang chicken on my leg. And I didn't (laughs) even be mad because it woke me up from the little sleep I was getting or happy that it wasn't something worse than a chicken. So third night came and went, no problem. Fourth night, same thing. How long were you out there? No air mattress, horns, dogs, voodoo drums, finally sleeping. And again, I woke up because there was something on my leg. And again, I was scared to death. And I didn't want to jerk. So I slowly lifted my head and slowly opened my eyes. And again, it was that dang chicken. And again, I didn't know how to be mad or happy because I was getting no sleep. And so I was happy, though, because that night we had chicken for dinner. So my fifth night was without incident because we ate the chicken the night before. And I'll tell you what, at first I was bitter. I thought, who are these guys? Who are these guys that are making me sleep outside? And And I was even angrier, quite frankly, about that they never even drew straws or or anything. Um, My Haitian friends were sleeping not far from me. They were under a cover. And so they had cots under this cover. But they never, never said, well, you know, only eight guys can sleep inside or move your cots inside. They never did. They just assumed the Americans should sleep inside. I didn't like that. But anyway, Mm. so I didn't like that. I didn't like 
I was thinking, would my sons treat a woman like this? I'm all about equality, but I am a woman for goodness sake, you know, whatever. I'm the queen, right? And so, <laughs> so what the heck? And, and then I'm thinking, well, bitterness, you know, I can't be bitter. Bitterness only hurts you. You know, the, mm. lots of times you're bitter towards somebody, you're angry. They don't even know it. They're just going about their really? life. You're the one that's getting sick because you're bitter. You're the one that's sad yep. because you're bitter, right? And and I and I was working on love doesn't keep record of wrongs. So then it hit me over the head. Love doesn't keep record of wrongs. So what love does is it it changes the tone of the story. So instead of these rotten men that made me sleep outside, now it's just this funny thing that happened to me. And now I could literally sleep anywhere in the world and be perfectly comfortable. It just mm. changes the narrative. It changes the narrative because we react, whatever happens to us, we're in charge of our reaction. We're yes. in charge of it. And we don't have to react with bitterness. We, we can... We can change the narrative. We can make it comfortable. We can uh, not hang on to that. We can yes. get to the point where we are not keeping a record of wrongs because the story has changed in our heart and our mind. Wow. Kim, like, so I put like this 10 second like, clip right in front of every episode. You've said so many things. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to put in the front of this episode <laughs> because I'll tell you what you, you just keep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm sure. I'm positive that we could do this for another hour and a half. However, it is time to get to our three what's. You can take as long or as short as you would like with these questions. So, first what? What's an opinion you have that will be considered unpopular? Love is not a two-way street. You don't Ooh, love like to it. get love back. You give love, period. Love loves, period. Once you give something to get something, that's a transaction. Love mm. is not a transaction. I'm not giving you money to get a pair of jeans. I'm giving you love, period. I like it. Perfect. Well said. Okay. What number two? If you weren't in your current venture, which is, I guess, writing books and speaking, <laughs> what would you be doing? I would be in some country helping somebody somewhere doing something to contribute to the good of the world. Be out there loving. Out there loving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, last one. And this may, uh, this would be perfect. So if I were to take this, I go, hey, I just spoke with a wonderful woman who has tons of life experience. She's amazing. She wants to tell you something. What advice would you give to someone in high school? I would say, guess what? She did your homework for you. You don't have to do the homework. You don't have to go to Haiti and live for 14 months in Haiti to get these mm. revelations, just read the book, read the book and change your life. And the younger you are, the better, but any age, but I would have loved to have known what I know now when I was a teenager. 
The power of hindsight, right? Yes. Yes. What is that? Youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> I think that's the same. Uh-huh. Okay. Where can people find you? Uh, social media, where can people buy your books? This is your time. Plug it all. Okay. So I am very easy to find if you can remember how to spell my name because I am the, literally the only Kim Sorrell spelled my way in the entire world because there are way too many letters. There are two R's, two E's, two L's, S-O-R-R-E-L-L-E. And nobody spells it like that. And I don't know why it's spelled like that, but that's my husband's family. And so uh, Kim Sorrell, so kimsorrell.com. But you can also get to my website a little bit easier, loveis.info, loveis.info. And so there's some fun stuff on my website. You can find my book, but there's a love challenge on there. There's some other stuff. There's a love challenge that if you sign up for it, I will send you for free. A WWLD, what would love do? Wristband. Because Jesus is different to everybody, right? Not everybody would answer what would Jesus do the same way. But love is universal. And everybody should answer that question the same way. So what would love do? And, uh, but my book is in brick and mortar stores. It's Barnes and Noble, wherever. And it's also on Amazon, all the booksellers online. Amazon sells the most books of anybody in the world. And so of course it's there. And so I'm easy to find because, because my name and love is, and, uh, my book has a dark blue cover. You can kind of see it in the background over one of my shoulders. And it's, um, so I love is, is easy to find. And, uh, it's, I'm on all the social media platforms and I'll tell you what, it's been quite the ride because I mm. have gotten emails from, uh, wives that were about to throw in the towel and didn't. And I've gotten emails from, from families that gave a copy to all of their adult kids who are living all over mm. the country. And once a month, they do a Zoom. They do a chapter a month, and then they they do a Zoom and talk about the chapter. And small groups are doing it. There's companies that are buying buying it for their staff because wow. love doesn't, you don't hang love up in the coat closet when you walk through the door at work. You know, it walks nope. right in with you. So people are doing that. So it's it's been great. Most people are buying more than one because they know somebody they want to give it to. And mm. uh, I, I'm, I love it. I love it that people want to know more about love and that the, we're going to change the world. We're going to all get together and change the world. That is a great place to end it. We're all going to get together and change the world. Kim, this was amazing. And it's going to live forever, right? So wherever you are, however you're listening, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, make sure you all subscribe, download, share, because these are the conversations that, that change the world, right? Hopefully something was said by myself or Kim, uh, specifically Kim, because she's amazing. Uh, you are that too. has sparked you amazing. to maybe do things differently or do things better so uh signing off for kim i am your host tony rambles and i will see you all in the next ramble 
Boom. Wow. That was fun. That was awesome. Man. That was, that was fun.